welcome to A Just Transition, brought to you by RBS International. My name's Tim Phillips. Welcome to my co-host, Yulia Magnutina. Hello, Tim. Yulia, it's fantastic because we're not normally in the same place. We can reveal this secret now, but <laughs> today we are. So it's great to actually do this in the same room as you. Absolutely. In this episode, we have chosen three ESG trends for 2024. So, Yulia, most importantly, who has chosen the three trends for us? Welcome to David Postlethwaite, Associate Director ESG at KPMG Crown Dependencies. Hello, David. Hi, Yulia. Hi, Tim. I wish I was there with you. Instead, I'm dialing in from uh, rainy Jersey today. Yes, but rainy Jersey is not the worst place in the world, David. Oh, no, no, definitely not. When the sun comes out, it's a glorious place. Sadly, that's not the case today. So, David, straight to it. What did you pick as the first trend? Reading the tea leaves for the year ahead, I think the first big trend I'd draw out is greenwashing. We're really seeing a, a kind of global crackdown, particularly in the financial services space, against greenwashing. I think if you look around the globe at where regulators are focusing their attention, certainly in the USA, we've seen a number of enforcement actions taken by the SEC, so the regulator at the federal level of financial services against a number of asset managers. And we've already seen fines there in the millions of dollars and offices raided. And this is tracking through into an increase in litigation and class actions as well. And indeed, regulatory change off the back of that to put some guardrails around the naming of financial products so they can't include words like sustainability or impact, things that people, investors would associate with specific sustainability characteristics. And I think in Europe, whilst those cases have been less common, there are definitely signs that type of action is on the increase. We've seen some action in Germany recently against a German bank, so similar to what's happening in the US really. And in the UK, the most recent development in this space is the introduction of a general anti-greenwashing rule. So from May this year, all FCA regulated businesses in the UK will have to comply with a general anti-greenwashing rule, whereby essentially any reference to sustainability in their marketing, in their literature, in their financial product documents must be correct and capable of being substantiated and it must be clearly presented in a way that can be understood. David, is there a single definition of greenwashing now that's common everywhere? There isn't a single global definition. Different regions obviously have their own definition of what constitutes greenwashing. In the European space, we tend to think of it as any practice where sustainability-related statements, declarations, communications, etc. don't clearly and fairly reflect the underlying sustainability profile of a financial product, of a financial service, or, or any sort of product or service that consumers might be targeted with. And who has the power to crack down on greenwashing? So typically it's in the hands of regulators. If you're the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, you'll be very aware that consumers and wider society are increasingly demanding more sustainable products and services. And But with that growth in demand comes, I suppose, the need to ensure that what's being sold to investors is genuinely credible so that you maintain that trust in the financial system. But it goes beyond the role of regulators as well. I think civil society increasingly has a role to play. We're seeing NGOs taking action, whether it's class actions or or bringing claims against corporate institutions that maybe are, are overstating their practices. So definitely civil society has a role to play in this. And I think, you know, we all have a role as consumers and, and as professionals to call out greenwashing when we see it. Yulia, in your experience, how big is the problem? 
the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, estimates that currently 35 trillion US dollars in assets under management are in ESG-labeled funds, and there is a further growth projection, about mm-hmm. 27%, according to David's or thereabouts. And it's only natural that this leads to increasing concerns about those types of products and funds confusing or even misleading clients about the nature of some of those investments. So those of our listeners who keep an eye on the news in the area will, of mm. course, know that on a weekly, if not daily basis, there are news about the crackdowns, the complaints, the lawsuits, the investigations being carried out into the greenwashing accusations. And as David has mentioned, we see courts around the world really imposing substantial fines for greenwashing. And they obviously started to mount, but I think it's just the beginning. Um, the real impact and the much greater costs as well will be the commercial and the reputational damage that comes with being accused of greenwashing or being perceived as greenwashing. So yeah, to address those concerns, regulators, of course, bring in new rules. And we've seen in the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority um, publishing guidance on sustainability goals and the Green Claims Code in the US. Similarly, we've seen the US Securities and Exchange Commission forming a task force to prioritize the investigation of climate-related misconduct. And as David has mentioned most recently in the UK, it was the FCA anti-greenwashing rules as well that primarily focus on labeling of green and sustainable products. So it's definitely an evolving area, and I'm sure we'll see a lot more regulation and developments happening in the greenwashing space in the very near future. David, what do you reckon will be the damage if greenwashing is allowed to persist? I think we've seen some really stunning growth in the uh, market for financial services that focus on the sustainability characteristics of products. So KPMG carried out some research, as you were referencing, in this space, which indicated 27% compound annual growth rate over the last six years. So that just shows that there is real demand for this. And that's very encouraging because it points to the fact that consumers, investors are really conscious that they can make their money matter. They can achieve their sustainability objectives as individuals through the way that their money is invested, not just through other consumer choices that they make, like what car they drive or how many times a year they fly, that sort of thing. At the same time, we've seen research from ESMA showing that 70% of the misleading communication incidents that they picked up last year related to greenwashing within the financial services space specifically. So very significant issue there, which I think over time could really undermine that trust which is growing in the ability of the financial system to be part of the solution. And I think it can feed into some of the broader narratives that we're seeing develop around you know, pushback on sustainability, pushback on ESG objectives, the fact that ESG is increasingly becoming a politicized topic, particularly in some jurisdictions. Okay, so that's obviously a a very serious problem, but it sounds like one that's beginning to be addressed, David. So what's the second trend that you picked up for us? I think the second trend is going to be the search for impact amongst investors. So impact investing until recently was a fairly niche strategy. Mm. So just to focus in on what impact investing actually is, so it's any sort of financial undertaking or investment that aims to generate positive social and environmental outcomes that are specific, measurable, and that result in financial gain. So we're not talking about philanthropy here. We're not talking about money that is being given away. We are talking about investment activity, but investment activity where 
effectively the positive impact on the environment or on society is measured and tracked in the same way as the financial return and is as important to the objectives of the investors. It's a strategy that really differs from the regular kind of ESG that we tend to talk about in the market, which is really about taking account of sustainability issues and decision making. This is more about actually linking sustainability to the investment objective. So it goes beyond just limiting harm. It's really about driving positive change. Have you seen that appetite for impact funds as opposed to these ESG funds? Are people saying, I really want to create that defined impact? Yeah, so there's been some interesting figures put out. I think in 2023, PitchBook put the overall size of the global market for impact funds over $600 billion. Mm. It's it's fairly sizable. You know, it seems like a drop in the ocean compared to the overall market for collective investment schemes, but it's still a a sizable chunk. And in Europe in particular, we've seen some really encouraging growth amongst what we call Article 9 funds. So within the European labeling system of funds, Article 9 are considered the sort of the most green funds. And within that space, you will find impact funds, funds that focus on things like decarbonization. And those funds, those Article 9 funds have seen an influx three and a half times greater than their non-ESG counterparts over the last couple of years. So, you know, really some record figures coming out in 2022 and 2023 for impact fundraising. I think towards the end of 2023, that definitely slowed off a little bit, probably in line with a much more difficult fundraising market in general. But the indications that we have from our clients are that 2024 is going to be a pretty significant year for investing in impact. And and I've seen some research that suggests over 30% of institutional investors expect to allocate more resources to impact funds over the next 12 months. So definitely growing strongly. And we've seen some pretty significant funds being raised in this space. I think at the end of last year, we saw um, the Apex Global Impact Fund, which was a Guernsey domiciled fund. So relevant to the crown dependencies where I'm based. And that raised over 900 million, I think, as at close. And that's going to invest in mission-driven companies with core products and services that really tackle environmental or social issues. Some fantastic examples here, David. What are the key important features of an impact fund? So that point around intentionality is key. This isn't about mitigating damage to the environment. It's really about achieving a positive impact. And so having a clear sustainable goal with a clear theory of change associated with and hardwired into the fund's objectives is really key, I think, to investors in this space. But backing that up, there needs to be evidence and data, obviously. So having the ability to collect data that really evidences that the fund is delivering on that objective and having a very measurable impact with very clear metrics and KPIs in place. Yulia, David was just talking about collecting data here. It it must be a huge challenge for funds to measure and report this impact credibly. Yeah, it's um, data collection and data assessment is definitely one of the key pain points that are always mentioned by our clients. <laughs> we talk about this every episode. We? we do, we do, but for the right reason where um, things are getting better, but we're still not there yet. There is no one size fits all when it comes to measuring the impact, but there are some frameworks and some sort of key bits of advice that I can share with our listeners. And I think one of the most simple 
simplest ways of looking at it is through four key steps that we need to go through. So number one is estimating impact, and it starts with conducting due diligence activities, and really that's at the pre-investment stage. Number two is planning impact, so it's driving the metrics and the data to monitor impact. So back to your question, team, exactly that. Mm-hmm. And it's at this point, I always think that it's crucial to consult with advisors, to do the research, know what the peers in the industry are doing as well, to get a better understanding of what the best practice really looks like. And number three, then, is monitoring impact. So again, it's measuring and analyzing once it's there to ensure that mission alignment is there and the alignment of performance is there as well. And number four is evaluating impact. So once you've done all those previous steps, once you've gone through step one, two, and three, how does the post-investment social impact of the investment really look like? And here you can utilize various frameworks. You can as well reach out to the independent third-party advisors and they can help you with this journey. But in simple terms, it's estimating, planning, monitoring, and evaluating. And I think another useful point to mention here is that it's a complex area. There is no one right way to measure impact. So there are many helpful approaches, obvious, and processes and frameworks in place, but there is no one single silver bullet to solve it all. So I would encourage our listeners to start measuring impact. And although it's important to measure it well, it's often impossible to measure it perfectly, but it shouldn't put anyone off. And should have let, let's give it a start. Let's aim for good, learn the best practices. And if you have any doubts, as I said, approach your advisors who can help with the entire process. Yeah, I agree completely with what you're saying there, Yulia. That's some really useful points. And just to call out maybe some of the frameworks that come up in discussions with our clients, I think the the sustainable development goals, so the 17 United Nations SDGs are a really useful starting point in standardizing conversations around impact and helping to develop areas of focus and drilling down into specific problems to be solved. I think that's a really good way of looking at impact. And there are some voluntary frameworks out there that can be used. So the Global Impact Investing Networks, um, IRIS Plus is a sort of a global baseline, I suppose, for reporting on impact. And that really helps you to set your KPIs and measure them going forwards around specific points like the calculation of greenhouse gas emissions avoided, for instance, if you're targeting decarbonization and other social measurements that could include things like jobs created or taxes paid, support to suppliers to improve their their labor practices. But in terms of labeling and kite marking, in the private capital space, we are seeing more and more private equity houses, for instance, thinking about their next fund potentially being an Article 9 fund. So under SFDR, as we mentioned, these are dark green funds and impact investing would typically sit within that space. And obviously there you're caught by specific reporting requirements under the European regime that can be quite onerous. So really thinking ahead, if that's your your plan, your strategy for your next fund, that does require a lot of planning around where is that data going to come from? How will we, as you say, carry out the right due diligence and identify assets that are compatible with an Article 9 fund and that align with the overall impact strategy that we're looking to define? David, and what's the third emerging trend that you have picked for us? So the third trend I've picked out is biodiversity. And it feels like we've been talking about nature and biodiversity in the investment space for a number of years. And in every year we say this will be the year, but it really does 
feel like things are beginning to gather some momentum you know, off the back of developments like the Das Gupta report that the UK commissioned and published two years back, which really highlighted the complex linkages between global prosperity, economic prosperity and nature. Something like 50% of global GDP is moderately or severely dependent on nature. And other developments like the signing of the Global Biodiversity Framework in Montreal, which targets the so-called 30 by 30 commitment, so protection by 2030 of at least 30% of terrestrial inland water and coastal and marine areas, protection of biodiversity and ecosystem functions there. So that's a real, almost a sort of Paris Agreement moment for nature. And I think off the back of that, we are beginning to see more interest amongst our clients, or at least interest is probably the wrong word, more awareness amongst clients of the need to integrate nature into their assessment of the ESG credentials of their funds in particular. So listed funds are beginning to think about how they capture data on nature, how they would report on that. And I think the publication of the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, uh, their framework last year has been another catalyzing moment where it feels like there is now at least a, a standardized framework around reporting on biodiversity that's beginning to emerge just in the same way as the TCFD, the climate-related financial disclosures framework, has really helped to kind of standardize climate reporting. So that's why I've picked out that topic for this year. I think we often tend to think about nature and biodiversity in the risk context, but do you see any opportunities in the field as well? Potentially, it's huge, right? So the, the annual value of ecosystem services to the global economy is 120 trillion per year. So oh, oh, over half the that. global economy is effectively dependent to some extent on those natural services. But at the same time, we've got a biodiversity finance gap. So money that needs to be directed towards tackling the nature crisis. We've got that finance gap of 700 billion per year in order for these global objectives to be met. So from an investment perspective, there are definitely still questions around the investability of nature mm. and the field of natural capital and nature-based solutions is still in development. But there is this emerging understanding that climate and nature are really two sides of the same coin. So it's really two interlinked crises, the climate crisis and the nature crisis. So this emphasis on nature-based solutions to climate change is generating interest. And I think in the and opportunities and products are coming off the back of that. So in, in private assets, for instance, things like sustainable forestry, regenerative agriculture, increasingly conservation as well, where perhaps it used to be the domain of venture philanthropy, for instance, but that now also generates return-seeking opportunities as well. And in the retail and listed space, I think in the last year, we've seen a couple of you know, $500 million plus funds raised from managers like Morova and HSBC with pollination. So some big players in this space. From the Channel Islands perspective, Guernsey have launched their natural capital fund regime to try and create a, a platform for managers to develop their natural capital fund investment products. So I'd say it's definitely a developing area, but um, there are opportunities out there. David, I hate to be the person that always asks the same question, but yeah, I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to say as part of that gap in biodiversity finance due to the fact that biodiversity is quite hard to measure, isn't it? It's quite hard to report. 
it can be hard to report, but ultimately it is something that all corporates and all businesses over a certain size, all asset managers are going to have to start thinking about because once the ISSB standards, so this is the new global baseline for sustainability reporting comes into force, mm -hmm. all companies over a certain size, all asset managers will have to consider material sustainability topics. And that might include, for example, things like their water use, their reliance on those nature-based services that we talked about. So I think it will be become more standardized. We mentioned TNFD as a framework for reporting on that. Again, that's helping to bring some standardization. But if I take the case of um, a recent listed fund that we were speaking to, so this is a fund that invests in renewable energy, particularly solar and wind. You know, these are large sites typically. So it's quite a lot of land where the installations are based. And so there's a lot of opportunity there for what we call biodiversity net gain. Mm -hmm. And so some of the metrics, some of the data there is linked to those biodiversity net gain targets that the fund has set itself. So they'll undertake to carry out assessments, for instance, in relation to these sites, understand the species that are present there, understand where habitats have been degraded, and then set themselves targets around improving those habitats over time. So actually, with the right assessments in place, with the right targets, it is possible to gather data and report on that in a way which is meaningful, ultimately, to your stakeholders, to your investors. Julia, we have spoken before about the burden, the stress that fund managers are feeling, just being able to report, collect data on their ESG targets. As David says, we start every year full of optimism that biodiversity is going to break through in this space, but it hasn't yet. Is this because it might just be a step too far for them at the moment to be able to collect that data, to report that data? Tim, you just love asking tricky questions, don't you? <laughs> it's the same question. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, we're back to data collection and data analysis, which is definitely a continuous pain point for um, our clients. But mm -hmm. that said, I completely agree with David. We have for a very long time ignored the threat of biodiversity and the loss that it presents to our prosperity, growth and economic growth as well. And now definitely feels like the right time to recognize that it's time to take real action. Nature and biodiversity metrics are a lot more difficult to define and to measure. So with climate, for example, we sort of agreed that we're going to align with the Paris Agreement and temperature increase with nature and biodiversity. It's difficult to even comprehend where should we start. And mm -hmm. there are so many different definitions. There are so many different ways it can be measured and metrics that can be used. And that it's not surprising that it's a lot more difficult to track and assess. However, I'm a strong believer that we can utilize the learnings that we've made on the climate journey so far, and that we can to an extent sort of reshape and reframe the frameworks that we utilize for climate as well, and build our nature and biodiversity assessment on top of that. Climate and nature and biodiversity, they're all interlinked. They're not completely separate concepts, so it's only reasonable not to leave them all in, in separate silos. What I also think is key in here is to not only think about the burden of additional work, of the complexity that we're working with, but also consider the opportunities that come within the nature and biodiversity space. So it's all the new increased investments and customer interest that I'm sure will be increasing in those projects that use nature wisely and have fewer negative impacts. It's also the many potential new industries that we're going to see popping up and the new possibilities that will be emerging on the back of it. 
For me, it's really about focusing on the positives and the opportunities whilst considering the risks and doing the hard work. David, this podcast is called A Just Transition. What does A Just Transition mean to you? At a high level, it's all about ensuring fairness and equity in the process of transitioning to a net zero economy. So really that, that no one gets left behind and the most vulnerable communities and workers are supported during the transition. But I think to me, it's also about understanding that there isn't really a one size fits all global model to what a transition to net zero looks like. When I was involved in discussions with uh, the UNFC4S network in my previous role at Jersey Finance, one of the things that really stood out when we were discussing the transition, particularly with our counterparts in developing economies, is that the model of transition for a developed Western economy doesn't look anything like what sustainable development looks like in developing economies in places like Africa and Asia. So using that Western lens and applying it to developing economies doesn't really work. It's about understanding that we need models that work around the world globally and that we take a holistic view of the transition. We don't get stuck in this carbon tunnel vision. We need social development as well. We need to take account of the impact on nature of some of the solutions that we're developing to deal with the climate crisis. And we need to harness nature as well as part of the solution. So that holistic view, I think, is really important. So that's what the just transition is to me. Great answer, David. And as with all of your answers today, full of really good detail. David, thank you. Thanks very much, Tim. Thanks, Yulia, for inviting me. Yeah, and thanks to all of you for listening. Remember to follow us. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review as well, especially if it's a good one. We'll be back soon for our next episode. Goodbye for now.